And we're live. The Hunt for Success podcast. Elton Rivas is joining us here today. Cody Steinman, Ryan McCracken on the uh, internet search over there. Um, it's been a little bit since we've done one of these, but since what, January, middle of January? Yep. It always seems kind of winter is kind of we uh, take a little bit of a break. <clears throat> but uh, uh, glad you're with us today, Elton. Uh, you know, I know very little about what you're doing. I've done that on purpose so we can kind of get to know each other today on the podcast, just what your dad sh- shared with me a little bit. Uh, uh, your dad uh, uh, and I used to work together or worked with Ryan and I for, for quite a while. Uh, before we dive in, are you a Netflixer? You watch Netflix from time to time. We we've we've got the Amazon Prime and Hulu and Netflix, but I mean honestly, I haven't been like a huge TV guy for a long time. But what what are you getting to an episode or a well, series or what do you got? It was funny because um, uh, there's a gal here staying at the museum who's uh, taking her Coast Guard license. She's over from Idaho, so ah. she's staying here while she's taking her her uh, uh, education for that. And I was trying to describe what you do, uh, and I know very little about it. And she goes, oh, like the fire Festival. Oh, have you seen that documentary? I, I, I have seen. I've seen both of them. So that, and actually, we, my, uh, my wife and I just watched it while we were on the Oregon coast, like probably a month ago. So there, there's some irony there. But yeah. So the, I didn't know there was two. There, so there's one on Netflix and there's one on Hulu. And each of them have a little bit of a different angle um, as to what was good, what was bad, who's responsible, who's accountable, um, you know, all those types of things. But And were you aware of that festival going on before the documentaries? Because I knew nothing about it. Yeah, absolutely aware of it. I was at a, a time in my life where I was acutely aware of every kind of festival thing that was going on anywhere. <laughs> and um, yeah, the, the fire Festival was, a, a man, one of those things that you look at from the outside and you wonder what the true story is because no matter what the documentary tells, none of it's actually 100% accurate. Really? Know? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess that, that's my perspective on being kind of inside of media and inside of things and seeing, like, how stories actually start yeah. to unfold. Um, and if you go watch the Netflix one and then you go watch the Hulu one, you'll see two different stories told. Really? Right? I'll, watch the, I'll yeah. watch the Hulu one tonight. For those of you, Ryan, you know what we're talking about? Yeah, I do. For those of you who don't, uh, I guess this was what two years ago. Seems like it in the two-ish range. Yeah. What did what did look familiar to me was the orange tiles, the orange squares that they used on Instagram mm-hmm. to kind of market. Yep. But it was a, a festival they that this company was using to promote the company. Correct. It was a a company kind of like Uber for celebrities uh, that need agents. Something, Something like that, like yeah. That. I mean, it was it was kind of, um, from my understanding, it was booking music talent on demand, right? So high-quality music talent on demand was the, the Fire app. Um, the Fire Festival, I guess, from the little bit I know about it, right, which is like watching it in the news early on when it was happening, seeing social media as it happened or, I guess, didn't happen, <laughs> you know, to the point that it was supposed to, and then seeing the uh, documentaries recently. But... It looked like it was uh, just an evolution of an opportunity to, to make money um, in a way to you know bring a bunch of people together and kind of go after the uber affluent aspirational you know millennial audience that was out there and say they were going to do this festival on an island with music and parties and boats and models and all this kind of crazy stuff and uh, yeah I, I guess it imploded it turned uh, into a total disaster yeah right? yeah that's that's lack of infrastructure it looked like I mean from from the outside looking in and that happens, right? You get into things too too fast, too big, and yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, because they were doing it on a on a private island. It was supposed to be one of Escobar's islands, mm-hmm. but then they had to move it. And uh, they had like 10,000 people or whatever it was showing up. And these people started to show up and there was no place for them to stay. Yeah. And it was a total disaster. Ended up canceling it. Uh, Blink-182 was supposed to play and some some other rappers. A whole bunch of big names. And yeah. they all just started backing out and... Yeah. So, uh, tell tell me a little bit more about your festival. So, uh, what was the name of the company that you were with at that time? It, so it was not like fire, right? I mean, yeah. it actually happened, which I, I guess is, is a good thing and a major difference. Um, we we had some amazingly talented people on the team that uh, you know thought ahead about things like infrastructure and mm-hmm. thought ahead about things like, oh my goodness. You know, if this actually does come through in the first year and, and we have tens of thousands of people here, you know, where are they going to use the restroom? Where are they going to go and yeah. have drinks? And what do we do with trash and all, all those well, kind of things? But, and just to go back, the fire Festival was kind of a cover for major money laundering or, or fraud that was going on with the owner of the company, right? Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, again, I... Because he's in he, jail now, right? He is, right. Yeah. So he, you know, obviously... Um, had some issues with things that that happened there for sure, uh, but watch the watch the Hulu one because okay. the interesting thing and, and get back to you know festival here that we worked on in the past, um, the Netflix one really kind of it seems to put a lot of the accountability directly on him, so it's his fault. You know all these other people that are around him like ah they were part of it, but like it's his thing. Yeah, and then the Hulu one, and then if you go out and just kind of research your own. Um, I mean, man, there was hundreds of people involved, right? So, like, at what point does accountability solely re- re- go to the person that uh, is in jail? Well, obviously, there's a lot of accountability there. But in reality, like, if you watch the Hulu one, there's, there's this whole other, you know, social media company that was behind this thing, and they knew there was no infrastructure. Like, they knew that things were going to fall apart, but uh-huh. they continued to promote it. So... I don't know. I, personally, what, what being, social media company? Uh, I forget the name of the company, uh, but it, it was in the Netflix documentary okay. one as well. But you kind of look at that and you say, you know, ethically, like at what point should you just pull the plug and say, no, I mean, I'm not going to promote the heck out of this, and knowing that this is going to be yeah. something that might go wrong, get all these tens of thousands of people there. Like that just seems like at some point you should pull, yeah, pull I mean, the plug. Yeah, people could have died. and Yeah. Yeah. Um, so our, our festival is called One Spark. Uh, happened in Jacksonville, Florida uh, for a number of years. Um, started as, as an idea. Uh, there was a group of us that got together that was kind of just frustrated and tired with the, uh, the local ecos- ecosystem in the community. Not really being uber supportive of entrepreneurs or freelancers or artists or musicians. Kind of that was creative it, When class. was this? Uh, goodness. I want to say 2011-ish was kind of when the groundswells started getting going. Um, 2013, I think, was the first festival, if I'm doing math right. Um, So got organized, and there was another group at the same time that had been kind of pushing things forward. um, And they were looking at a festival in Michigan, in Grand Rapids, called Art Prize. Um, And Art Prize is the world's largest art competition that's curated, I guess, in essence, right? So there's millions of dollars that go into it, and you know, this huge prize purse, and uh, the crowd gets to vote, and then there's some curation from panels of experts, and you know, you win prizes in different categories. So it's all based on art? 
all based on art. Um, and it's, it's a really, really cool experience. The team up there does a great job, have been to it a couple times, um, you know, great folks. So there's a group in Jacksonville that was working on that kind of concept in the community. And then there was a group of us, um, myself, uh, a guy named Dennis, a guy named Varick, that were working on uh, kind of, you know, cultivating this kind of creative ecosystem in Jacksonville. And at the time, we had uh, this thing downtown in Jacksonville, Florida. And a lot of cities have these things where, you know, you've got an art walk every first Wednesday or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. So we, we went to Art Walk and uh, we invited people in and th this was a 24 hour cycle, mind you. So we said, hey, on a Tuesday, we put out this video that was just this teaser video of, you know, come get involved and get engaged. And we had no idea at all what we wanted to build, what it was gonna be. But the theory was that if you put a message out there, there's gonna be a, a bunch of people that um, would be attracted to that message. And from that, you could take a bunch of feedback and then, yeah, um, craft something and move forward with it. So we put this out and we had like 300 people show up the next day, which in that community and ecosystem was a lot. And we were like, oh my goodness. And they know. were just showing up to like the first Friday up. art local. <clears throat> well, the, the art walk was going on, but we had an actual space. Um, at the same time, we were looking at opening up a co-working space uh, in that community. So it was the space that we were looking at and it was, I mean, totally raw, right? I mean, ripped out walls, like, go in there and you're kind of like, oh, what is this place? I, I, I can't see a vision of it yet. And from that art walk, we had a whole bunch of people that showed up that night and said, hey, I want to get involved. And they would ask questions like, what are you guys actually doing with OneSpark? And we said, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, we, we don't really know yet. We know we want it to be a movement. We know we want it to be something that uh, helps to cultivate, you know, this kind of ecosystem and, and provide pathways specifically for creatives in this community. For, on the entrepreneurial side, correct? Mostly on the entrepreneurial side, but um, at the time it was very open and very, very open, meaning, you know, artists, musicians, um, designers, there's a huge design community in Jacksonville that's really strong, uh, like graphic design, arts, mm -hmm. things like that. And so, that was kind of the, the first step. And from there, it turned into, you know, fast forwarding where we said, okay, there's this other um, group that's moving forward with this idea of an event. Uh, there's a couple of folks in Jacksonville that said, hey, what do you guys think about this? Uh, and moved forward with saying, well, what if we did a crowdfunding festival? Because at the time, that was when crowdfunding was huge and mainstream uh, early on in the days of Kickstarter, Indiegogo, yeah. uh, those types of things. And yeah, for those that don't know what crowdfunding is, right, it's, it's basically just a new term for an old way to raise funds, right? And, you know, a lot of people call it the democratization of capital or things like that. Really, it's just a whole bunch of people that are supporting a cause, an effort, or a new product early on in this life cycle. And for that, they may or may not be getting some sort of reward, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's GoFundMe that's out there now is the, the biggest crowdfunding platform there is. And it's probably the most personal because anybody can just go raise funds for uh, anything. Yeah, a lot, mm -hmm. of no <clears throat> a lot of nonprofits use it. Yep. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I never made the connection till just now, but... Uh, I do a little bit of Kickstarter. Uh, I watch it and yeah. and uh, spend a little bit of money on there. And there are a lot of artists on there, especially a lot of musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the band The Sword? I don't. Uh, they're a pretty big uh, rock and roll band. They got exposed on um, on uh, uh, Anthony Bourdain's show okay. when he went to uh, Texas. Ah. Uh, but uh, the Kyle, the uh, 
guitar player is doing a solo album, and he raised it all all of his funds off of Kickstarter. Yeah, and uh, you could get the more money you donated, you get different stuff, right? So it started out with a, just a copy of his record, all the way up to a signed copy of his record, all the way up to having him come to your neighborhood and go right. out for a beer. Yep. Uh, so I thought, what a cool way to raise funds. But one, it's a cool it's a cool way to raise funds. But more importantly, it's a cool way for your fan base to connect with you. To connect, right? right? Where it, where we've lost that connection with our music because we don't have that physical yep. uh, CD where you get to read through the lyrics and you get to own it. Uh, there's a there's this new wave of ways to connect with musicians and on uh, on crowdfunding and other social media. So, so sorry to interrupt. No, but, no. Yeah. So, so exactly what you just said was the thesis of doing it in person, right? Yeah. Like online, you get to connect, but almost connect i mean if if you're in person with somebody and you walk up to them and if, if you were raising funds for something and i said hey why are you doing this and you answered me and you looked me directly in the eye there's a different human connection than there is online sure and so the the theory was well let's do a crowdfunding festival in person and then take it offline and the value of that um became huge for a, a whole bunch of different creators you know and Fast forward, I mean, this became one of the biggest events ever in Jacksonville. And, you know, the first year we, we set this huge audacious goal um, of having 100,000 people show up. And, and a lot of people called us crazy, and that's okay. Uh, it's 8 o'clock, my alarm's going off. Um, <laughs> I, I, one of my current ventures, we've got to stand up every morning, so that's just a reminder. Oh, well, you're not, you're not going to make <laughs> not, it today. Not going to make that today, no. Um, so we, we had this, you know, goal of having 100,000 people out there for this crowdfunding festival. And we started by raising 100K in 30 days on Kickstarter ourselves to kind of to seed uh, the funds of it, but most importantly, to validate the idea. Yeah. You know? and, and that's a lot of what crowdfunding really is, um, is you've got this idea. It's a really good way to validate it, to build an initial community and base of followers, of backers, of supporters, of um, you know, those kind of folks. And then from there, we moved forward and uh, we were fortunate to connect with a gentleman named Peter Rummel in Jacksonville. Um, brilliant guy, great guy, um, wonderful mentor and, and friend that believed in doing something big and helped financially back us for a number of years to get it out of the gate. Uh, you know, you do a festival that's a week long and you've got hundreds of thousands of people showing up over the years. I mean, that's a, that's a big, heavy thing yeah. uh, to do in the, in the market. But yeah, fast forward and first year, 130,000 or 20,000 people showed up. Uh, we had more or about the same amount of folks ride uh, public transit as when the Super Bowl was in Jacksonville, just to give wow. a perspective as to the size of it. Um, amazing team of people and you know first year I think we had six or seven hundred volunteers so uh, as an organization as a nonprofit you know you, you go I think we originally kind of started full force and hired our first employee in August and the first year we did the festival I think it was in April um, and so it was just this crazy six-month period of time to pull everything together so when you did your initial Kickstarter the 30 days did you hit your goal we did. We did. We exceeded it, um, which you do that and you get into something, you've got a really short period of time. You know, some of the beauty of those things are you can't overthink, right? You just execute. And 
execute a lot yeah. <laughs> and you get into the space where you're just running full speed. Um, well, that's kind of what happened with the fire festival, right? Is they were executing this idea, but they never, they almost had the opposite of paralysis by analysis. They needed more analysis yeah. to make it happen. So did you guys have people on the team that had experience with festivals? We did. We, one of our, our, our best hires um, was, a, was a guy named Joe Sampson. Great uh, event background and production. And he ended up, as I transitioned into something else, being the, uh, the COO and executive director and running it for kind of the second year um, and then transitioned out. And I came back in in the third year. But I, I think without the right team and infrastructure, there's no way that, you know, this thing would have been pulled off. Um, my role at the time was vision fundraising, you know, market development, kind of community development, those mm -hmm. types of things, and, and building the team. Um, once the team got in place, then everybody had individual roles and, and went from there. We hired great PR folks. We, we had great social media people. And the amazing thing was the community that just came out of the woodwork and said, look, like, don't pay me. I just need to help. Like, I want to be involved in this thing because it's something that um, we've needed in our community for so long and whatever you need us to do, we'll do. Um, a lot of times with volunteers, you get people that say that, and then, ah, what happened? You know, when you yeah. actually, actually ask them to do a real task. I mean, we had real volunteers that were doing real work, you know, 20 hours a week. I mean, mm -hmm. like, that's pretty cool. That's a, that's a pretty powerful thing to be part of, so. So <clears throat> give, me, uh, give me some examples of the type of uh, people that showed up to... Uh, participate from the entrepreneurial side or the artist side? I mean, do you have any stories of people starting there and kind of taking off? Yeah, there's, uh, oh goodness, it's it's not fresh in the mind, you know, these, sure. these days. But uh, one that comes to mind, and I forget if it was second or third year, but, and, and I, I should share a little bit more about the framework as to how kind of things worked as well, because yeah, that, that'll make sense for um, how these people kind of, launched from one spark if you will so and, and how, how long was the festival um each year it it changed slightly but on average is about five days um so you know it's a long time and and i think that was one of the the biggest complaints from the creators as we call them that showed up was like this is just brutal I mean, a lot this of work is so much work uh, but you'd show up, you basically set up, and it was in a massive area. So it was like almost 20 square blocks in downtown Jacksonville. Oh, wow. So we basically shut down downtown um, between Wednesday and Sunday each year of the festival. Local businesses, the majority of them on the feedback that we got loved it because the foot traffic that would come in. And mind you, I mean, downtown Jacksonville has struggled for a long time. Uh, just with a, an economy, not a lot of foot traffic, a lot of abandoned buildings, those types of things. So it was a, you know, the byproduct of the festival was a lot of good uh, economic, you know, development sure. type things. But you come in, you apply to, to get into this thing, you get selected, uh, you get curated and matched directly with a venue. And a venue could be an outdoor space um, that was you know, managed by the Museum of Contemporary Art or something like that. Or it could be with inside the walls of some sort of uh, business or venue downtown. So they select, you know, uh, who they're going to host and they get to curate their own space, which is kind of cool. Also kind of a chaotic, nightmarish type thing, as yeah. you could imagine, when you've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of creators that do this stuff. Uh, and that evolved over the years uh, into different categories. So music, art, science, technology, those were kind of the main categories that were out there. 
And people would come and they would present their project just as they would online on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe, things like that. But then they would interact with literally tens of thousands of people over that five-day period of time and give them their pitch. And the biggest benefit that people would get out of this, you know, some people would go there for funding specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a, a whole other track and path for entrepreneurs that were looking for seed stage investment or growth capital or things like that, that they could apply to and then go meet with real investors from around the country that flew in and, and did kind of, you know, um, hate to say it, but it's the easiest picture is like Shark, Shark Tank, Tank, you yeah. know, style pitches, those types of things. And... <clears throat> From there, people would either get capital, uh, or they would get customers, or they would get validation, right? And validation could be like, hey, this thing's great, but make it blue instead of green, you know? Yeah. Or, um, no, this is a terrible idea. And if you hear that 10,000 well, because that's times, what paralyzes a lot of entrepreneurs from <laughs> right. executing ideas, that fear of it not being popular, fear of it being rejected, right? Yeah. So that kind of gives people a, a, a place to test it to see. Exactly the yeah. case. and. And in an environment that's supportive. I mean, yeah. everybody knows the purpose of this thing. And you go there as an attendee. Um, and, and I think half the attendees showed up because they wanted to be part of it. And uh, they wanted to vote or they wanted to contribute funds to, you know, creative projects and those types of things. I think the other half just showed up because there was a whole bunch of people going there. And they were like, man, I need to go be part of this. Because um, it was open to anybody. Anybody yep. could, yeah, mm -hmm. anybody could attend. Could attend and um, during the, the first three years, there's, there's no fee for it. So just come mm -hmm. open to the public, those types of things. So fast forward to your, your topic and question about, um, you know, any particular creators that, that were great or things like that. One that comes to mind. Uh, was a company called Part Pick, and I, th I think Part Pick has now raised you know a ton of money, um, and it's for the the automotive industry. Uh, I'm a you know engineer. I'm somebody Part Pick. Part Pick, yeah, P A R T P I C. Gotcha. And they came down from Atlanta, um, and you can take a picture with your app of some sort of part that's a mechanic, you know, drawing or like an actual part. It'll tell you what it is, and it'll give you a whole bunch of information about those parts. Um, and they have exploded uh, as a company since oh, yeah. since then. Um, there's been a number of other companies uh, that you know have done well. There's been artists that have met um, people to get new projects, get new works, get new backing, uh, those types of things. There's been musicians that have, um, you know, gotten picked up. I, I don't know labels off the top of my head or any of those things at, at this point, but like have heard all of those stories and still to this day have people that reach out to me directly and, and they'll tell me like, hey, but for one spark, yeah. right, this wouldn't be happening in my life. And they're all over the world. Um, we did a satellite event in Berlin, Germany. Oh, uh, wow. That was a small-scale uh, one-day event that, that had, I think, five or 6,000 people that showed up. Uh, and was that called One Spark as well? It was called One Spark, yep. Um, and so that impact has been really, really just cool yeah. <laughs> to, to be part of and to so have do you, seen. So do you do it in any other cities besides Jacksonville or just, just Jacksonville? J just in Jacksonville is, uh, is where it happened, yeah, just in Jacksonville. So <clears throat> this new company you have, the um, uh, Hairpin Legs, mm -hmm. uh, did that idea start at the one at the uh, one spark? It didn't. It no, was separate. It was separate. Yeah, I had uh, transitioned out of one spark, and as a, as an entrepreneur cycle goes, I was kind of uh, sitting around on the couch, just depressed. <laughs> like I yeah. have no idea what I want to do next. Was um, it depressing seeing all these other people come up with ideas and have them 
go and be successful? No, I, I think personally, the depressing thing for me, um, and, and probably the first time I shared it, was OneSpark actually had a real huge opportunity to impact people on a global scale. Yeah. And we had some potential partnerships that would have taken it as such. Um, and at the time, half the board wanted to do it, and the other half the board wanted to keep it local and keep it small. Mm -hmm. um, was not on on that same page with that portion of the board and you know they asked if i would leave i'd resign and you know stay on and serve in a board capacity as, as one of the founders and so it's just time to go you know um so that was really because, hard because you wanted it to go more global and, and have it and they the, wanted to keep it local yeah and i mean the why behind it was to make a big impact i mean yeah you know it wasn't about making money it wasn't about any of that um, it was to make a big impact and provide pathways. Well, for just people. as you were talking about it, I was kind of bummed that we don't have something like that here. Yeah. You know, just with doing this podcast, which we just do for fun and right. for, for getting to meet people like you and share stories. Uh, I mean, how awesome would it be, Ryan, to participate in something like that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I know some people that would do another one. But. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we could talk about that when we're done. Yeah. But yeah, <clears throat> but uh, yeah I, I mean, it's, it's a shame that that didn't get more national spread out you know yeah or so, international yeah. right right and so i think that part of it and i this was at the end of a five-year cycle personally so i was just tired you know and and came out of that I had just gotten married which um I, I think out of that five years was the best thing by far mm -hmm. um met my wonderful wife sheena and you know um it had asked it gotten asked to resign like on my birthday so it was just this weird cycle um and walked out of that meeting and told her it's like look like I'm going to leave this. I have no idea what's coming up next, you know, for income or anything like that, but have been through the cycle before. Um, you haven't with me yet, but, you know, we'll figure it out. And she's like, okay, I don't know what that means yet, but yeah, okay. And also gave her a heads up that, you know, probably going to be just kind of, as I call it, like in the basement for a little while or just trying to sort out myself and take some time and those types of things. So did that. Um, the uh, person that I'm working with uh, DIY hairpin legs on now, Matt, was actually a pastor in his previous life, and he was the guy that married us and a really good friend. So, uh, you know, I started going and volunteering at um, at his church because my wife was like, "You need to get out of the house. Like, yeah. you need to go do something." And and I knew she was right, um, but didn't want to, and so started doing that. And then uh, one day he's like, hey, what do you think about hairpin legs? I was like, what the heck is a hairpin leg? Like, I don't even know what that is. Um, at the time, I had been working with a group of people in Chicago and Seattle, um, this new venture studio called Proto Ventures. And this guy, Will, had come up with this framework um, and put it out there on, on something called Startup Rocket. But basically a process by which to ideate validate um you know kind of define grow what a startup might be and i told matt i said look man like, i don't know anything about hairpin legs or wire forming or metal goods um i've always been fascinated with furniture and design and that kind of thing but if you're willing for me to vet this framework at the same time as we're trying to figure out this you know project um at the time called it a project now it's a company <laughs> then like happy to get involved so we did we went through this process and validated everything and uh the first day we put up i think probably the worst website i have ever not not just been part of but like seen right it just had this little 
little landing page and said like for hairpin legs for hairpin legs right and we're like what do you want to call it like diy hairpin legs because that's what it is (laughs) um we had all the website looks awesome pull it back up there right it's it's a little better now than it was that first day but um it literally just had a form that said like if you want to buy hairpin legs submit your email address (laughs) and we went out and did some google ads and the next day we had 10 email addresses and we both called each other and went hey did you do you know any of these people no do you know any of these people no so yeah fast forward and we got serious about it a few months later and um started the company with a 65 dollar harbor freight manual bender uh, and, and I'm taking that. That's Matt's line because he's the one that actually started bending the legs. So you had hand. orders before you had product. We did. Um, and then we figured out how to make them <laughs> and kind of went wow. forward from there. If you build it, they will come. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to dive more into this hairpin legs, but I want to go back to something you said. You sure. talked about a five-year cycle. Mm-hmm. And coming out of one spark this wasn't the first time you've been through that five-year cycle. Yeah. Do you think that the, the time frame, that five-year cycle, is something that uh, that applies to everybody, or do you think it's just five years to you? Because I feel like I've been through cycles too, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't recognize when they're in a cycle. Yeah. I. That's an interesting question. Um, I know for me it's pretty close to that. And... and whether or not that's intentional or a byproduct of how I run or, you know, what it is, I, I'm not uh, 100% sure yet. Uh, I think this cycle, I'm learning that probably mm-hmm. more and embracing it more, and, and I've got way more awareness of it um, and intentionality around different things with it. But I've, I've seen people go through three-year cycles. I've seen people go through seven um, I think everybody's probably a little bit different based on what they're doing and, and what their well, life circumstances. Uh, let me interrupt you because I think you said something pretty profound there, and, and that comes with experience, right? Is the understanding you're in a cycle and being more intentional with your decisions mm-hmm. instead of acting uh, or acting less emotional yeah. and more intentional. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you see that a lot with uh, older people in their careers mm-hmm. uh, that are on their second or third venture, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs and have, you know, talked literally with, with thousands of them over the years. And there's some people that struggle with the, the cycle of kind of being depressed at the end of a venture. Mm-hmm. And there's some people that don't um, as much. And I, and I say as much because even, even the folks that say like, no, like I, I have never really battled with any of that stuff. Um, when you start talking to them and you ask them how they're doing and you talk to them about what's next, there's just a, a different level that they're at that's not the same as they were, you know, at the peak time of things going right or being, or, or even things going wrong, but them actually being in it, so to speak. And so I think one thing that I've definitely recognized for myself, um, and I've seen with a lot of others, is the, the need for a time to reset. And this time and this cycle, it was very intentional to say, I'm going to get involved in something that's not very public. Um, I'm going to get involved in something that is within my realm of quasi control. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, our current company, we've got a wonderful, great small investor, um, and we have, you know, no real other board structure than Matt and I. Um, and that's worked for the time being. I, I think fast forward ready again to start to scale. Um, but 
have been just really fortunate to to take a year and a half traveling the country on the road uh, yeah. with my wife and moving up to to Seattle from Florida. You know, we thought it was going to take a little bit of time, and <laughs> man, it's taken a lot longer. But that has been very intentional this time of saying instead of just jumping into another project. Instead of just jumping in and. And even people asking and saying, hey, I'd love to get involved in this, things that normally would be super exciting for me um, and are in my wheelhouse, I've said no. And is it because it wasn't exciting to you anymore or is it because you were intentionally just trying to take that break? Just intentionally saying no. And things that are exciting and would be and during the moment are, um, you know, really of interest and uh, amazing amounts of, you know, cash at the time where we're, we're kind of not doing as well as we were before and that's okay right now because it's a it's a reboot time so is it a struggle to not fill that void with another project because it seems like if you've had success as an entrepreneur and you've you're moving on to another project it almost seems like you'd want to fill that void right away to avoid that depression of having nothing right yeah and and i think i i did fill it but with different things that were new priorities right so so for me like i've got a very clear priority schedule um, as to what's important to me right now. I mean, mm-hmm. my, my faith is number one to me. My marriage is second to that. My kind of family and friend structure is next to that and what's going on in life. And part of that is, is also, also just personal well-being. And then after that, it comes, you know, ventures and entrepreneurship and those types of things. And I think that's always been there, but it hasn't been as... Um, strong yeah or define i mean when did you define that because because you were you said faith and then your wife and then family and then ventures when did you set that priority was that after i think that's been there probably before one spark um i I think that's probably been there maybe a dozen years or so right i mean that's been there but it hasn't been as strong where i'm at a point where i'm not willing to bend those things Mm -hmm. anymore and and I found actually that I perform better when I keep them in line. And you, you talked earlier about having some mentors uh, right now in the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. uh, and uh, sales and that kind of field. Sure. Coaching is like the hot thing right now, yeah. right? Everyone's getting coaches or have done coaching or becoming a coach. So did you have, did you lean on those mentors to kind of help you come up with that priority? I, I think... I would say that those mentors and advisors and even just pure peer friends um, probably gave me more confidence and courage to accept it, right? And there, there's a difference between knowing it and accepting it inherently as to, like, this is my code. And mm-hmm. I, I think, and, you know, talk about that with sales and coaching, and that's that's a big hot thing. I, I think there's a lot of stuff, um, even just with, you know, that talks about male and female and, and what's hot right now and, um, and gender and all these different things that are out there. I think men used to have a real strong code of ethics or code of arms, right, if you yeah. go way back into history. And I think there's been some loss of that and degradation of it over time. So, I mean, personally, over the past year and a half, um, have read a bunch of different things, have watched a bunch of different things, have allowed myself to just go and explore on the internet on days where, you know, I've got extra time, um, where in the past I, I wouldn't do that. And I think some of that has just helped to say, like, no, this is this is me as a person, mm-hmm. and I'm okay with who I am. Um, and coming out of the cycle of, of OneSpark, I mean, this is the first time, and there's 
big explosions in the media when you know things started changing and that kind of stuff. So it was the first time I had ever experienced that. Um, and didn't really have, I think, the right uh, group around me at the time to be able to go through it um, in a different manner, I'll say. Not necessarily a better one, but just a different one as, as you learn things and you experience them, you approach them differently, right? That's how mm -hmm. life goes. Um, but at, I, I think about it now, and I was talking with my wife about this actually a couple of weeks ago. The ability to say what was actually in my heart and on my mind um, wasn't a, there as it is now. And so I, I think that has changed definitively during this past year and a half of uh, being on the road and traveling and doing you know different ventures and work and that kind of stuff. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that you, you kind of filtered yourself a little bit when you were in that role? Um, Was it a confidence? I mean, because I've struggled with that too. Yeah, I, I think... I think there was a couple different things. One, it was new. So lack of experience in, in those situations and settings um, breeds inability to execute well in the moment and stay with what you know to be true. Mm -hmm. I think the other piece of it was um, something that grew so fast and so big just kind of goes, oh, well, okay, this must be the right thing to do because other people have done it like this before, <clears throat> when in reality, it may not be the right thing to do, you know? So it, funny thing and, and kind of makes this point, but on the way here this morning, you know, I'm listening to music and I realized it was the first time in a really long time that I was excited not to have talking points, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it, it was great to actually just go sit down and be like, hey, let's just talk. And and be okay and open with everything. And that's how OneSpark started. Mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of the early ventures that I got involved in that were very public started, was just going and not having talking points. And at some point in time, um, things changed with that, right? And, and people said, well, this is what's important to say because otherwise there's fear of loss. Do you think that's inevitable with any big project like that, that, that you get to that point where it does become a polarized thing of opinions and and if you're going to be on the board, you kind of have to be like-minded. You think that that's organically that's always going to happen? Uh, I, I hope not, because I don't <laughs> I don't want that same cycle to to move forward with what we're doing now, and and I'm pretty committed to trying to make sure that doesn't happen. You know, and and I don't think it is because I've seen other um, companies and other boards and other ventures that are structured differently, and uh, you have to make some hard decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Like. Um, th this is a total left turn here for a second, but but I think it might be a, of interest, so let's go with it. Sure. I uh, <clears throat> talk about like going into you know the web and just watching things. My my wife got me for her first anniversary. I, I guess you're supposed to get uh, paper, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so she got me this little bonsai tree kit, okay. and I haven't used it yet, but I'm really fascinated about the whole art of like bonsai trees. Yeah. And All I know is Karate Kid. Yeah. Yeah. What do you know about Karate Kid? The, about the bonsai just trees. Just the bonsai trees, yeah. right? Because remember, he used to, that was part of the tri training. Tri tri yeah. 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 Just trimming those mm -hmm. bonsai trees. So the other morning, I was uh, just really distracted and I, I couldn't get focused on work. Um, you know, we're moving this week. We've got a lot going on personally and professionally. It's just a, a strange time. I just could not get focused. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to let myself go for a little bit. And I'm just going to like watch videos about these guys doing bonsai trees. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, I was watching this video about this bonsai master, and you know, he says this thing. He's like, "You'll never have a beautiful bonsai unless you are cutting the limbs." And I kept going and going and going and watching and watching, and that's that statement has stuck with me. But sure. everything about this art of like training these little trees, and apparently you can make bonsai trees out of almost any tree if you spend the time on it um has really stuck with me about like how to cultivate businesses and how to move forward with just all sorts of aspects of life right i mean at some point in time if there's things that are detracting you you cut them mm -hmm. and some of those things may be really really painful to do or really hard to do well i think the most common ones are relationships right sure cutting those relationships out which is tough yeah and and all sorts of relationships, right? I mean, yeah. some of those are business, some of those are personal, some of those are customer relationships, some of those may be um, board member relationships to get back to that topic. I mean, there's there's all sorts of different things with it. And maybe that's one of the reasons coaching is so popular right now is because um, it's hard to have the confidence to make those decisions. I mean, those are bold decisions. Yeah. And the repercussions of those decisions can be really great. So having somebody just like getting validation from going to a festival with a with an idea, getting validation sure. from a coach on, hey, I'm thinking about cutting this customer relationship out, or I'm thinking about hiring or letting this person go and getting validation from somebody that's a supposed expert. Yeah. And, you know, you'd asked <clears throat> timing-wise, and, and was it a, a courage thing at the time, I, or a confidence thing at the yeah. time? And... I, I actually, I and mean, maybe that's that's why I said courage first. I think it was a courage thing, right? Like, had the confidence, knew what was right to do, um, but I think it was a courage thing. And for me, the the strength and faith provides that because, in a way, not in a way, but the the truth for me is like doesn't really matter what a lot of other people think as long as I'm doing what's first in my priority list. And. Mm -hmm. And that's trying to love people well. And as a CEO of companies, it's the most lonely job there is. Um, and you know, a lot of people talk about that. And I don't care if anybody says there's there's something else that's more lonely. I mean, being a CEO is a lonely gig. Um, you've got a board that you've got to go and sometimes impress, sometimes persuade, sometimes battle. You've got. Um, nobody else that's directly at your peer level and at the end of the day if you're a founder and ceo you have to make the decision like you have to make the hard call and the board's not going to do it right they're going to give you feedback on it your team's not going to do it they're going to give you feedback on it um but i think over the past year and a half solidifying uh, my faith relationship with god and saying okay like I'm here to be a CEO of companies. Like that's what so, I was put here to so do. So do you think that that kind of what you're describing is really similar to a company's core values, right? You have your list of sure. priorities. You you kind of see that as a way to test decisions is does this decision match my core values? Uh, as a company's core values? No, as personal. Like as, your, you know, your your priorities of faith why family, immediate family. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, it's my personal framework or matrix to, to vet things through, right? Mm -hmm. Which in a way makes makes decisions a lot easier and, and you don't have the same weight that uh, you might otherwise have going to sleep at night or waking up in the morning. Now, mind you, you still have weight, but, but it's not uh, a weight of indecisive regret potentially, right? And I say potentially because Regret comes for people, and that's a big word that a lot of people use and like and don't like for yeah. a variety of different reasons. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think absolutely that is a, a framework by which I pass most all big decisions through these days. Well, you're gonna the regrets inevitable if you're are responsible for making that many decisions, right? Because you can't have the success you've talked about without having some form of failure, right? You know, and that's where really when we when our experience of meeting people on the show is one common theme has been. You know, don't ask me about my successes. Ask me about my failures. There's mm -hmm. more to learn there. And so you have to come to terms with, I would assume, with having that regret because you're going to make the wrong decisions, right? Yeah, and and whether or not you choose to actually have it as a regret, right? I, I think um, I look at all these things now as, like, I'm just really genuinely thankful for having the experience of it. Mm -hmm. And so... There's some decisions that, you know, where I am now, I would have made differently in the past, but I don't necessarily, uh, I, I say necessarily, I don't regret them. Like, I don't regret that time. Um, I'm actually really thankful for it because of the fact that it's fast-forwarded me, you know, how, however many years of experience yeah. uh, in a short period of time. Absolutely. Well, just back to my point earlier that a lot of the, the stuff you're talking about is stuff that comes with years of experience, right. you know, guys that are a lot further along in their careers. Yeah. Well, I think all that's really good. What do you think, Ryan? I think it goes along with uh, uh, who is the author of Miracle Morning. Uh, Hal Elrod. Yeah. So, you know, his kind of thing is his, his, his slogan is can't change it. And so when you're talking about, you know, whether it's regrets and I really like the way you put it, you're like, I don't necessarily see something as a regret. It was an experience, uh, whether good or bad or whatever, but any experience, uh, what you're going to pull away from that is, is, you know, just how you, how you view it. And whether, again, whether it was good or bad, it's, I can't change it, but what am I going to do to move forward now? Yeah. Um, so, well, and I like what you said too, about having a concrete definition of your personal values. I don't, I don't remember exactly how you put it, but we had uh, Patrick Palmer on uh, a couple episodes ago and we talked in length about company core values mm -hmm. and what they mean and how it's a way to test decisions a company's going to make or a decision an employee makes as it match the company's sure. core values. Um, even our office, we came up with uh, what we call our code. And it's yep. something that we can pass everything you do throughout the day, you can pass through. So it's communication, ownership, discipline, and excellence. Um, but I really, you, you're making me think about staying true to yourself and having your own core values and, and having it prioritized, right? And everyone yeah. kind of, that we, we talked about that with people before and with coaches and stuff, having your own set. But I think having that well-defined and sticking to it, you know, and I think, you know, for example, Ryan does a really good job of prioritizing his family and work life, mm -hmm. and he has kind of a line he does across. Yeah, and I've always respected that, and and I think I know what mine are, but I don't think I've always stick to those. Yeah, I and, think even even with this podcast, I mean, mm -hmm. we've had lots of discussions based on, uh, you know, do we do we stay in the museum? Yeah. You know, sometimes these animals can be polarizing to some people. Like, sure. do we take it to an off-site location with a gray background? Right. Um, you know, when kind of the the title of our podcast started out of a play on words, like the hunt for success. Mm -hmm. When it, well, it's not a hunting podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, animal conservation is something that's really important to Ryan and I. And that's yeah. what this museum's all about. And to have the opportunity to film it here, um, you know, maybe we look at it as a challenge to kind of, uh, talk about what animal conservation is, but the, uh, the we just wanted to be ourselves. We wanted yeah. a format where we can come talk about things we we enjoy, which 
is entrepreneurship, success, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, hunting and fishing as well. Uh, but and, and that stuff's not always easy, right? I mean, especially over the past <coughs> decade. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of history. I, I'm not a huge wealth of knowledge of it yet, right? I, I think that's a lifetime of learning to even dabble into what real history is. But um, where we're at today, and and even looking back historically, like leadership is really hard and mm-hmm. being true to yourself is is really difficult and, and those are easy words to say but the reason for it is because if you're not successful then you're pointed at as a failure if you are successful then you're pointed at to be torn down with your flaws mm. right so either way like it's, it's hard double-edged sword. Yeah, it, yeah. it just is and so keeping some sort of code for for me personally um has been like okay well at least i know who i am because it's going to be hard in this this world of leadership um and putting yourself out there for things and i think part of the lesson of going through these battles um you know in in public media's eyes and stuff like that and i mean literally and you know not a lot lot of people know my close circle does and now whoever watches this kind of will but um, you know, there's times where we're going through battles with uh, with the PR team of a billionaire, and you know, I wake up at three in the morning with phone calls um, from local news media saying, "Hey, like they literally just sent this this release over, and they timed it so it'll hit the morning news." Um, I wanted to give you a heads up about it to see if you get a response. And I get this at two, three in the morning, you just in tears, yeah. literally, you know, laying there like, "Why is this happening?" Uh, but man, what an experience, right? (laughs) Like, okay, so that happened to me in life. And moving forward now, it's like, yeah, that's probably going to happen again if I continue to try to do things that are pushing the boundary and being a leader. Well, you know, you talked about um, kind of a, uh, uh, in the entrepreneur and arts and everything, in this revolution that we're going through with technology, uh, that um, there's a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a lot of times there is talking points and it kind of becomes polarized, right? Yeah. I almost feel that with uh, with the ability to have anyone who wants to get their opinion heard or start something like a podcast or mm-hmm. some art form on their social media, even down just to their Facebook page, uh, everyone has the opportunity and it seems like, at least I hope, that the support for free thought and um, uh, freedom of speech and opinion is more supported and it's less polarizing unless you have to go by these talking points if you're going to get any uh, pickup, right? And if you don't go against those, uh, your ideas can be squashed. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm starting to see maybe it's just because people are getting sick of the political climate and the d- division in our country. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to see more of that support of wanting to give everyone a platform to talk and everyone a platform to opinion and not let someone's opinion squash the rest of what they have to offer. Yeah. Do you, do you see that or do you think it's not, that's not happening? I, I don't know. And I, I want to uh, want to ask you to expand on that a little bit more, but um, I think that, there are more pathways for people's voices to be heard. So I agree with that. And I think that there's also a lot more noise 
right? A lot more noise. <laughs> because, because of the fact that there's more pathways. I also um, know that there are still, right, the leading voices, and voices could be media outlets, could be influencers as we define them today in social media, um, could be folks with deep pockets that are behind the scenes, um, that if they want an opinion to be out there publicly, then there's ways to make that so, right? Because you can do things bigger, faster, stronger um, with more resources. Well, I think that's why the censorship with things like Twitter and mm -hmm. YouTube and Instagram are so important to keep those things sacred because uh, let's take Fox News as an example and Murdoch, mm -hmm. right? Um, you have uh, Sean Hannity, who's all opinion, mm -hmm. um, and he gets, I don't know, four or five million views per episode. Mm -hmm. Then you have someone like Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. who runs a very small budget, very small podcast that he streams for free on YouTube that gets nine million views. Sure. So you have somebody that, that doesn't, isn't backed by uh, a billionaire who can capture more views than right. somebody on a national news channel. Yeah, yeah. And that's awesome. It, it is. And and so to that piece of it, I agree. Holistically support it. I mean, like we, we've been talking about OneSpark. That's what it was built from, right? Like yeah. It was a groundswell movement of people that said, like, hey, I want to go do something. Um, and for the first time in civilization, everybody, pretty much everybody can do it. It just takes a microphone. It takes a phone. And right. you could be streaming right to uh to an audience that's endless yeah. well and, and i mean a tremendous amount of dedication and time and effort and pursuit sure. and you know a, a little bit of talent probably at some point but um so, so that's why i you know it's like dive into that more because sure all the tools are there um but there's only one guy named joe rogan that's doing what he's doing absolutely yeah there's lots though i mean <clears throat> at, at that level yeah at nine million views right you're right. But I think you're starting to see more and more podcasts because we've been doing this two years. And when we started, there were a lot of podcasts. Now it seems like everybody's doing podcasts. Right. So I guess it, you can get lost, but at least there's all those voices that have a platform now. Yeah. Um, yeah and the, the fun thing about it is, you know, like Matt and I, um, with our current companies, we were talking about it. It's like, maybe we should start a podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's like, maybe we should just go on a bunch of them. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. there's a whole bunch of different ones that are out there and other people that have already provided this platform. So it, there's also now different ways to kind of use these things, um, you know, for whatever purpose or reason. Well, you know, and they're in the news right now. They're talking about Elon Musk having to step down. Right. Right. But even companies like uh, Tesla. Mm hmm. Seeing a Uber, seeing a CEO that kind of is like giving the middle finger to a lot of people, saying, "I'm going to run my company the way I want to. I'm going to go on Joe Rogan and take a drag sure. off a joint, right. and I don't really care what everyone else thinks." And it's getting to the point now where he's exploited that to the point where everyone's saying, "You got to get a CEO that's not going to go in there and goof yep. around." But in a way, he's inspired a lot of people to like, look, you know, go be an entrepreneur, and you don't have to have your ideas in this box. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In kind of an extreme way. Right. Yeah. What's your take on that? I'm curious. On Elon Musk having to step down? Yeah. Uh, just, just in the, the being a controversial leader of a big company these days. Well, it's really similar to Steve Jobs, right? Um, 
and I, I'm not smart enough. I don't have an MBA or anything like that to understand, you know, does a company need a CEO that really knows how to run a company? And does somebody like Elon Musk just need to be the vision, hmm. the idea part? Um, but I don't think you can argue with what he's done and the people that he's inspired. And he's going to go down being one of the great CEOs or great uh, entrepreneur minds uh, of our generation. Yeah. Right? You have Steve Jobs, and the next is going to be Elon Musk. Right. So um, whether you agree or disagree with the way he's running this company, and only time's going to tell, right? I mean, uh, the stock's hurting. They've had to make some pretty big decisions. They closed down their retail. They're going online only. The cars dropped in price. Now they're going up in price. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's the first CEO since Tucker that's taken on the big three, right? Yep. So, And he's actually having success with it. Um, so I think there's a lot to learn there without necessarily having an opinion if, if, yeah. if he should be CEO or not. I think there's a lot for to dive into just the way he's doing it. Yeah, it's you know? it's fascinating. I mean, it kind of goes into <clears throat> big vision leadership, right? And everybody, so early on, there's a whole bunch of fanboys, a whole bunch of fans of anything that's new and different. And um, I, I wouldn't say that I know enough about it yet, but I've seen the pattern develop. And, and one thing that I've noticed about myself is like I'm a, a pattern person, right? I'll recognize patterns and I'll identify them a little bit earlier than some others and then kind of move forward and go like, oh, this this is how you figure it out. But in that kind of realm of startups, um, and this has happened with a lot of companies, right? Um, happened with Uber and Travis. It's happening with, you know, Elon now. Um, it's Facebook. happened with Facebook and Mark. And I mean, it happens with all these kind of folks where you've got a big vision of something and early on, everybody's really supportive because it's disruptive and it's new. And it's like, oh, that's amazing. And and that's what happened in tech, right? Tech became sexy. Mm-hmm. And so everybody had this like, oh, I want to get into tech. Um, and, and I say that and I kind of chuckle because now we're doing like these wire form metal goods. And that's not sexy at all. But, but it actually is because it makes your home really cool looking. Well, and <laughs> there, there is this... Uh, uh, big thing going on with artisans right now, right? Yeah. That's yeah. kind of and popular. The maker craft and all mm-hmm. that. But all of these kind of big visionary folks, you've got this huge supportive base early on. And then there's some point where it starts to tip. And it starts to tip usually around massive, hard strategic decisions that if they work, well, half the people may get alienated for some reason because the early populace starts to put their own like connection into something, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the people that backed Tesla early on, what did they back it for? Well, probably a bunch of different things. One, like they loved the fact that they came out with a Roadster and it was a high-end car and like, I don't care how much it costs, I'm going to do that. And then on the other end of that same spectrum, You've got people that are backing it because it's hugely green and it's an electric vehicle. Now, those two people are probably fairly different in the way that they go about their lives, yeah, right? I never thought about that way. But it's a massive like population, and so you attract this huge audience. And then as you go through each of these stages of development of any sort of new project or vision or leadership, like all of a sudden you start to alienate groups. And some of those groups not only become detractors, but they actively go after tearing you down. And so, uh, like, I think that part, if there's anything that I think is a, a natural course or cycle that's going to happen, I, I think that is a big piece of it. You know, I never thought about it that way, but I think that's even true on small scales within, yep. like, even within... Yeah. How about a band? 
you got your early, you know, yeah. like I heard them when right. they played in my park. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then all of a sudden they're playing in a stadium and you're like, they oh man, they, they totally sold out. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I think that that course is something I'm really fascinated with right now because I, I wonder if there are things that companies or people with projects or, you know, anybody with any new idea that they're bringing to fruition um, can learn about it. Make this decision. We know this is what's going to happen. And are there different ways to communicate that? Not better, but just, um, you know, maybe more transparently, right? And I think that's a big piece of the puzzle in being able to navigate those rough seas. Is, well, uh, I think you're seeing being, it with almost every industry right sure. now because the, <clears throat> the, the biggest thing that's going to force people to make big decisions, mm -hmm. either small entrepreneurs, people in sales, or CEOs of large companies, is you got AI, robots, and blockchain, mm -hmm. right? And you have companies like Amazon, and Amazon, uh, uh, Zillow, Uber. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you have these major companies that are changing the playing field completely. So how are you going to compete with that and those decisions you're going to make I'm sure half the people are going to agree and disagree with those yep. big decisions, right? Yep. We're taking our, our business, which is mortgages, we're taking it in a little old school back to basics mm -hmm. in the streets, networking, providing something that those bigger companies aren't going to be able to provide. Uh, but those are very intentional decisions we have to make, and we get different reactions. Yep. So I, I think it affects every, it's affecting everybody. You know, and look at all the challenges that we're facing, I'm sure very similar conversations were made during the industrial revolution. Right. And sure. it's happening all over again and it's exciting as hell. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, I think overall it's a pretty unique time. I, um, I spent a bunch of time back in the day with a, a company called interline brands that eventually sold to home Depot. And, um, one of the just wild projects that was fortunate to work on at the time. And I, I came in to do special projects was, uh, to look at the housing market. And this was just pre-collapse. And so our, our team got to work with some brilliant minds at the Lake Joint Center for Housing Studies out of Harvard and um, all sorts of folks that were on the like bleeding edge of you know predictions at the, at the time. And um, I think it was luck along with uh, some, some great experience and some brilliant minds, but you know, predicted what was about to happen um, about six to eight months out and started making some recommendations and changes to the, the C-suite at our company and those types of things and helped weather the storm a little bit better. Wow. Um, but I think about that now and a friend of mine, actually business partner, Matt, like he's going through this process of, you know, potentially listing house and some other people are looking at that. And you hear about this company called Open Door? Uh, yes. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're on our stand up the other morning and he goes, so my house is under contract and like I haven't met with anybody. It's pretty close to what I would think it would be for the market price. And all I got to do is come out and do an inspection, right? Like what does that do to that type of an industry? Mm -hmm. um, you know, with transformative change, it's, it's pretty wild to see. You know, uh, you know, Darren Hardy, I don't. Uh, he used to be the publisher of Success Magazine. Okay. Um, and uh, he does a lot of uh, 
seminars and classes. And I'm, I'm terrible with names. It's one of those things if I saw, too. I might, but yeah. Uh, and he was talking about it in uh, one of the uh, seminars we saw him at. Uh, and he said, he was talking about the technological revolution that we're going through now and comparing it to the uh, industrial revolution. Mm. And he painted two pictures. And one was a dad uh, 30, 40 years from now mm-hmm. with his grandson on his knee saying, uh, I was there. I was there during the revolution and I took action wow. and I started this company. And all we have right now is because I did that, mm-hmm. because I was there. And the second grandfather with his son on his knee said, I was there. I was there and I didn't take action. Yeah. And all that we don't have and uh, yeah. is because I didn't take action. Yeah. And he was hmm. saying that this is one of those times in history where you, the opportunity is there. Isn't that any time, though? Well, I mean, I know there's some massive parallels between, yeah. like, the Industrial Revolution and, and kind of tech, right? We'll, we'll just call it that for now. Um, and there are some, some massive similarities between the ability to do things in the Industrial Revolution that couldn't have been done because of machinery, equipment, capital stuff, like, you know, that thing. Yeah. And then now because of access to information flow and, and the speed at which it can transport and deliver and app development, those types of things and devices. And, um, but in a way, like, you could also take that back to agricultural times. Mm-hmm. You could also take it back to prehistoric times. I mean, if you're a caveman sitting there. I, mean, I think it's, it's unprecedented, it's though. I mean, I, was, I just finished season two of Westworld last night. Mm. And it really makes you think of where are we going to be in 50 years? Sure. And I don't think you can compare the scale of change that's going to happen. Scale or speed? Or I, I think both. both. I think both. I mean, uh, you, just, you can name almost any industry right now, mm-hmm. and they're being impacted like never before because of all these changes with AI and sure. robots and blockchain yep. and everything we're talking about. So we'll see. Yeah, but, uh, but it's a great time. It's a great time to have festivals like that. Um, that that one spark. I, I loved hearing that story. Yeah, yeah. It was it was fun fun to be part of it, and um, it's fun to move forward from it in a way too, though. To to be honest, I mean, there's there's a lot of you talk about opportunity. I'm you know really excited right now to to get into the community in Seattle and yeah. plug in. Um, and with our company, we're looking at right now. Um, you know, we're going through some of those framework decisions of like, do we want to take on a huge round of capital and scale rapidly? And we've got some folks that are very interested in doing that. Um, we think there's a huge opportunity in the marketplace, uh, not to, to go into too much, but people want to make their own things. And a lot of our customers are really like struggling with finding component parts for furniture to mm-hmm. actually make um, different things. And you know, the number one thing people find easy to make is a table, right? You just need legs and a top. Um, you can do the same kind of things with chairs. You can do that with desks. You can do that with a, a bunch of different furniture pieces. And the maker, you know, revolution, we'll call it, um, it seems to have kind of grown but also stalled and capped. You know, so it's it's getting bigger, um, but it's not as timely in the media maybe as it was a few years ago with different things. 
but we still get requests from people all the time that are like, hey, do you know where I can find X? Like, I would love to make a couch, but I can't figure out how to do that. You know, I'd love to be able to do different types of shelving, but I can't figure out how to do that. See, I, I, I've noticed that too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way retail is going to get saved, right? These mom and pop shots are going to get saved. Yeah. And it's the people that are realizing that there's a shift going on. Mm-hmm. Sears just went out of business. Are you right. kidding me? Isn't that crazy? Uh, but uh, I'm going to get a little nerdy here for a second. Uh, I tie flies for fishing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I've gotten really into it recently. My daughter's starting to get into it, so it's become this popular hobby we do all the time. Yeah. But you can't find certain things on Amazon, mm. right? I thought you could you find th- everything on Amazon. You can't. You, I mean, can't. you can buy a tiny house on Amazon. Today. I know, but you can't, <laughs> you can't find certain maribus and certain feathers on Amazon okay. or certain hooks yeah. or it's a limited supply. And... My fly shop's out of business. The local fly shop mm. in Vancouver's out of business. The closest fly shop, I got to go into downtown Portland. So there, I think there's going to be an increasing need for being able to go and find that expert that has everything in that specific artisan, right? Um, even uh, uh, my daughter and I decided we were going to make uh, lemon meringue pie the other day. Mm-hmm. So I needed to go buy pie pants, right? Yeah. And I needed them then. And I know Amazon's getting to the point where a drone will deliver pie pants to my front door. Right. Uh, That's kind of like the quote of the day, though, right? Yeah. I mean, a drone will deliver pie pans to the front of my door <laughs> within an hour. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe that'll kill this. But uh, so I went um, to Bed Bath & Beyond. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was closed, mm. like out of business. And... So then I went to our local Fred Myers, and all I could find are these little tiny pie pans. So we yeah. made a bunch of tiny lemon meringue pies. <laughs> <laughs> and then my wife gets home, and I'm like, yeah, I went to Bed Bath & Beyond. They're out of business. And she goes, that store's been out of business for two years. And so <laughs> we're losing that ability to be able to go to a store and get something very specific that we need. So I ordered yeah. on Amazon. It showed up two days later, and then the following weekend we made a normal size pie. <laughs> But kind of, and I'm not trying to get away from your point yeah. because I think you it's really should, valid. Should have gone to Home Goods. <laughs> yeah. What's what's a Home Goods? Like in Jansen Beach, Home Goods, all kinds of. Home. Is that like linens and things? Eh, it's like a, it's like a Ross dress for less, but for Home Goods. Yeah, that's, that's a good description <laughs> of it. Yeah. Uh, but I hope we see a resurgence of retail for very specific things, like the mom and pop shops, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I, uh, we, we have this conversation about retail right now in real time, probably on a weekly basis um, with, with our team and network. And I've been asking a lot of people, like, their, their theories and thoughts on it. Um, the mattress industry is a good example of, like, the evolution of retail right now. And, you know, mattress firm was like, if I need a mattress, I go there, I get a mattress. Like, it's done. I know where to go, right? And now you've got all of these um, consumer brands that are, you know, D2C, direct-to-consumer, like, sending you a mattress in a box, Casper, Purple, uh, Tuft & Needle, all those folks, and know some people that have worked with those companies. And their evolution was direct-to-consumer first, and then they couldn't grab the rest of the market. And so now they're trying to figure out how to get the rest of the market by having a retail experience, right? So it's not a retail store per se, but it's kind of like, you know, Delta Sky Lounge that you go mm-hmm. into and you've got an experience with, with the product. Um, we've got a bit of a theory that in the furniture space especially, um, 
people want to touch things, right? Like you want to touch it, you want to feel it. Um, AR and VR is going to get pretty far to that, but man, that's still a little ways out before you can put something on your hands and actually feel it. Now, I mean, the, the technology is there, but the distribution of that technology is, is still, you know, years to come where it's a, a consumer, you know, in the home type item. So uh, our theory in, the, in that retail sector for furniture and home goods, at least, is that there's probably some potential to create a retail experience by which people could go in um, and there, uh, fast forward to this in a second, but there's a really cool furniture or a cool um, grocery store I went to that, that helped give us this concept in Berlin. But you could go into this furniture store and look around and you can kind of pick out your own component tree. And man, if you wanted the experience right next door to you of actually sawing wood and having some sort of finishing stations and those types of things, mm -hmm. like a lot of people don't get that, right? And and it's so off-putting because you see it on YouTube and you're like, ah, I, I don't even have a circular saw. Like, I can't do that. Or, oh, man, I, I don't know where to find these things. It's all education. And so if you think about, like, where we're at now, yes, you got access to education, but it's online and it's through YouTube and it's through some sort of other tutorial. And you don't have somebody that grabs your hand physically. They've used it helps. to replace that. Right. Instead of enhancing it, but but it can't replace it. No, right. So it, it, there's I I think there's a gap there in that retail space. Um, that's something that we're looking at very specifically. And uh, mentioned I share this idea. There's a grocery store, and my wife's been in the grocery business for forever, uh, and she loved it. We went to it in Berlin, and you walk in, and they they've got uh, a weekly selection of um, you know farm goods that come in. And then they've got recipes on the menu. And so it's kind of like HelloFresh and all that stuff that shows up at your door. But you actually went into the store mm -hmm. and got your own product. So it was a different type of experience um, that yeah. is way more hands-on and has way more well, meaning to it. There's something yeah. that is a lot of fun by being on a first-name basis with your butcher. Yep. Right? Uh, being able to go into a fly shop and actually talk to an expert that right. can show you the different materials or show you different fly rods you can actually go out and cast them or if you want to go buy a stereo being able to go and say see your buddy matt at the stereo store and help mm -hmm. you build it and help you listen to it uh so but you, you, it seems like you kind of have to have both and one uh, person that comes to mind is joe roder who's been on the podcast twice mm. and uh he is uh the head guide at uh the Reds Fly Shop in Yakima. So nice. he he they run they have a big lodge there, and uh, he's become kind of a celebrity on the internet on YouTube mm -hmm. because of all the videos he does. And he made a decision eight years ago to really embrace video and give a lot of education on fly fishing. Yeah. You can learn to fly fish from A to Z just by watching his uh, videos. But you can also go to his fly shop, mm -hmm. meet him, go on a guided fishing trip with the guy. Right. And so he, they provide both. And uh, I think that's awesome. Yeah. And so I hope you're right. I hope that's coming back because it'll be nice when I can go back down the street to my local fly shop or go to a furniture store and actually talk to somebody that knows what they're doing. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how. I, I don't think it'll ever come back to the point where global economics was dominated by small business purely. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think we'll see that again, um, at least in my lifetime. I mean, it may happen where there's something that we can't foresee in the future. But 
I think that's gone. Um, and, and I think it's gone just because the allocation of resources and the ability to do something on a big scale, uh, you've got to have a tremendous amount of resources to do it, right? I think the local experience probably stays, but it's not as prevalent. So mm -hmm. it's not in all the small towns or small cities, right? There, There's the one that made it in Portland, or there's the one that made it in a different city. Um, we were uh, talking about fly fishing. I'd love to learn how to fly ties, so you got to teach me sometime. Sure, um, I'll teach you how to tie flies as well. <laughs> yeah, that'd be that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time. I'm gonna go fly some ties. <laughs> um, we uh, we got this little Tenkara rod, and yeah. we were in in a, a town just outside of Ure, Colorado. But we went in and had that experience. Right, we walked in, talked to the guy. We we're like, look, we don't know much about this at all, but we know that there's different. Um, flies you get in different seasons in different places so teach us and mm -hmm. we, we probably spent an hour in there and it was like the best part of the afternoon and then we went and he you know then you get the local knowledge about where to go um which you don't get through the youtube tutorial experience so there's that little 20 percent gap yeah. you know that you still miss yeah. um and we went out and he he gave us some trails to go to we fished some beaver dams and we had just a wonderful like afternoon evening in this beautiful setting that but for going in and actually talking to somebody in person, um, we wouldn't have that memory or that experience, mm -hmm. right? We probably could have found the place. We probably could have still got some flies and had a good time and done all that, but that was the foundation that started it. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm bullish on the furniture sector, obviously, in retail, um, and I think that there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there to have a more meaningful human experience, uh, especially with the things that are in your home. So I want to summarize just a little bit, <clears throat> kind of uh, a theme that we've been talking about on this the, this episode is cycles, right? Mm. Um, and just like a, a farmer burns his crops, right? They'll do the intentional burning so yep. the crops come back stronger. Uh, it kind of feels like what we're talking about right now is uh, is that similar cycle. Mm -hmm. We had the housing collapse, the Great uh, Recession. Yep. And out of that came a lot of entrepreneurs that maybe got uh, killed <laughs> in the investment portion of it, or they lost their job, or they were at Home Depot, and yep. the Home Depot had to lay people off. And so they went out and started companies like Uber. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably a lot of the people that attended that festival in 2013 mm -hmm. were probably entrepreneurs that had yep. that nine-to-five job that went away. There were. And uh, we're seeing that cycle uh, again with this revolution of... Uh, mom and pop stores going out Sears big box stores are starting to uh, mm -hmm. go out of business so it'll be really exciting to see what comes out of that uh, and with what you said being intentional right mm -hmm. if you're not intentional where are you going to end up on coming out of that you know do you, how much control do you have over that um, all right I'm going to ask a question that we uh, try to ask everybody we don't always oh hit boy. it but uh, uh, it's kind of this will give you an opportunity to summarize too is you know what is success what about is success is important to elton mm. or your definition of success or how your definition of success has changed uh you know over the last decade i'd say yeah success is a big word like it's a it's a big thing and and at the same time like it's a really small thing to to me and I'll, I'll just give you my gut reactions and visceral reactions that yeah. come to it because I, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, to be honest. Um, for me, I'm, I'm a big goal person. 
So I'll set goals and I'll follow through with them. I've found myself, and I've shared this a lot with uh, with my business partner, my wife, my really close friends over the past uh, year and a half or so. I found myself setting goals and not meeting them over the past probably 16, 18 months. And it's been really odd for me um, because during the season of building ventures fast, like you do not miss goals or deadlines. And deadlines are always artificially set, right? They, they actually can pretty much always be moved around timeline wise. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, the, I couldn't tell you the number of weeks on end that, you know, I'd put in until two in the morning to get things done. Um, and so I find myself missing some of those things now and, and questioning like, oh, is that success or not? Like, am I, am I slipping or like what's happening with, with those types of things? Uh, and, and I think some of it is just seasonal where I've got different priorities. And so I'm saying like, this isn't a priority right now. And when I, my end goal has been to like get set up in Seattle and once I'm set up then it's time to do work and do work well and hard and fast. And so there'll be a change that happens there. And, um, you know, my kind of, uh, support community is like excited for that to happen again. Um, but I, I think success is, for me, around goal setting and then following through with that. And I think I've learned that if those goals aren't met, but it's an intentional choice to change it, mm-hmm. that's also okay. Um, and, and I say learned, I'm probably still learning that, rather. Like, that's a, that's a hard thing for me to accept because... Uh, you know, my, my history was like, I put myself through college. Um, I, I struggled financially, you know, we didn't have a lot of money as kids growing up at all. Um, I was the, the poor kid in the Catholic private school. Um, and you know, saw people getting cars given to them after they wrecked them and all that. So Mm -hmm. like for me, success was, was always around wealth creation. And, um, I was, uh, I was listening to something a while ago and somebody was like, Hey, you know, these this poor guy that I know like he has done everything in his life he's got you know multiple huge penthouses in Manhattan he's got a wife a family that loves him he's got this great business you know where he can be involved or not be involved as he wants got all these things and he's still not happy and doesn't consider himself successful and I was like why and they said, well, because his definition of success had always been equated to physical health, and he's a little bit overweight. So he doesn't consider himself successful because he's got 95% of what he's always set out to do, hmm. but you know, he's, he's not a triathlete. And that struck me, and I've probably heard it 100 different times in different ways, but that one struck me because I have been a triathlete. I have completed a full distance Ironman. Like I have done all those things and I was the inverse where wealth creation was success. And so, and this probably happened four or five months ago when we were on the road and, and I just told my wife, I was like, man, like what am I, what am I grinding so hard for here when if I actually step back and look, like there's a lot of people that would consider me to be successful, but I don't consider myself to be, you yeah. know? So that, that was a pretty profound kind of moment. Um, to start to restructure my definition of what success looks like. And now mind you, um, you know, there's been years where I've done very well financially and I've built probably half a dozen businesses that have grown to multi-million dollar ventures within 12 to 18 months. I mean, that's, you know, for some people like, wow, that's crazy. That's great success. Um, 
And so I, I think wealth as a byproduct has become my definition of success rather than wealth as a goal. And so it's more of a measurement. Well, it's it's more of a beneficial byproduct, right? If if I'm actually successful in doing it right, then it's not that important in the grand scheme of things. And so I've started over this past year living my life differently where the things that I would do with wealth are the things that I'm doing now. Like I would contribute, I would donate, I would help support other entrepreneurs, I would get involved, I'd get invested, I'd support new church plants because that's something I believe in. Um, so I started doing that now. Like I'm just doing it on a smaller scale. And yeah. it's felt a heck of a lot better and felt way more you know, successful to use that word. Um, by just actually starting that process of engaging. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say I was just uh, talking to my wife about this the other day. How often do you say, if I ever win Powerball, I'll do X, Y, Z? Yeah. Well, why don't you just do X, Y, Z on a smaller scale? Right. You know, instead of instead of giving $2 million to your nonprofit, right. why don't you give $200 to your nonprofit? Yeah. And the amazing thing is, like, you give $200, they actually really care. Yeah. Right? And it... And it actually has an impact to, to the people that you're contributing to and to yourself, mm -hmm. right? Because you feel good about it. I mean, as humans, we're wired to feel good about giving. Like, we just feel better about it when we do it. And when we actually do it with a full heart, then, you know, that's really fulfilling. Um, if we give out of some sort of desired um, reciprocal, you know, equation, it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. Well, I love your answer to that question. Um, if people want to learn more about you and your companies, uh, where do they go? Oh man, you can Google me for all the history stories. <laughs> Google's got all the answers these days. Um, I've got a website. I should probably start blogging again. I, I started writing. Yeah, I think you have a or, lot. Or, or vlogging. Or yeah. vlogging. Yeah. The, the old, just the old video to, blogs. To do the vlogs. Yeah. Just, just stand in front of um, your phone. That, that, that would be good. I don't know. I, I like, I actually really enjoy writing and um, that's that's a goal for me uh, in the future. So I've, I've got a site, eltonrevis.com. It's just my name. It's okay. out there. Uh, if you want to buy some hairpin legs, go to DIYhairpinlegs.com. Uh, some other things I'm involved in are uh, protoventures.com. That's out there. Yeah, bring that one up really quick, Ryan. Uh, yes. Tell me tell me briefly about this. Uh, so this is a just really organic, open group of uh, venture builders, as it says. You know, they're... People that are entrepreneurs, freelancers, designers, uh, business folks, um, engineers, tech you know folks that have this kind of collaborative together. Um, some people are actively involved on a daily basis. Uh, I was early in, in, in that. And some of us now where I'm kind of more of a, a remote so ne network partner. Is it like partner. consulting or is it just... Uh, no, so venture, a venture studio will actually come up and develop its own ideas in-house. And then um, our process is to ideate, validate, go through and, and vet them. And then, then if they're good, give them resources to grow. Gotcha. And then eventually you'll spin it out and you'll find a CEO to run it, right? So it's kind of an inverse relationship to an accelerator program. Um, Proto also has a consulting arm and, and those types of things as well to do external projects. But uh, yeah. That's, that's what it is. Interesting. Very cool. Um, whenever I think of venture capitals, I always think of, of wedding crashers. Because <laughs> isn't that what they did? Yeah, that's what they said they did. That's what they said. That's yeah. what they said. <laughs> that's they right. Did. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Elton, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, thanks for having me.
uh, check us out on Facebook. Uh, we're going to try to be a little more active on our Facebook page. Uh, Ryan posted for the first yeah, time. Yeah, f- Facebook, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, our our website, uh, thehuntforsuccesspodcast.com. YouTube, if you're not watching it there, you can uh, you can get us on a few of your other uh, podcasts. I'm going to try to upload to, to uh, Podbean and some others that are becoming more popular. We're going to try to upload there. Um, got some good episodes coming up. Eddie Herman. Uh, Eddie Short Fuse Herman uh, is coming up next, um, and we have a, a whole lineup of guests coming. So, yeah. All right, everybody, we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Elton. Thank you. Hey, thanks, guys. Bye.